This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. Welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast, where we are having conversations around um, how women are living out fierce and lovely in their lives and in the particular story that they are walking through. While their story may be unique to them, I find that there is always application to all of us. And today's episode is no different. My guest, Kate James, has uh, just shared with the world her memoir of um, walking through addiction, heroin addiction with her son, and it is a very specific story, but um, there are so many themes of uh, what does it look like to make poor choices and still love Jesus? What does it look like to love and embrace those around us who are making poor choices and still loving Jesus? What does it look like to um, walk through such a scary thing with someone we love who is so close to us and to have to wake up daily and just trust God again because we do not know what's going to happen. All of those are themes that Kate um, shares with us, not only in this episode, but in her new book, A Prayer for Orion. And uh, I just hope that it feels applicable to wherever you are in your own journey. And I've written some reflection questions for you in the show notes for you to just go deeper and consider some of that for yourself or to have conversations with those in your life. And you can also find out uh, more about Kate and where to find her book in the show notes as well. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Kate James. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Hi, Beth. How are you? Great. I'm thankful that you and I could squeeze this in in the midst of a, of a busy holiday season. Um, and I know in, just in a bit, midst of a busy season for you in general with a book releasing soon. So thank you for making time to chat with us today. Your story is so important and I can't wait for my listeners to hear more about it. But let's start with just a little bit more about who you are, where you are in the world, um, what fills your days uh, in this season of life. So can you share with us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. My husband and I work with crew. It's a ministry to college students, and more specifically, uh, we both are work for Crew Press. So that's an arm, a publishing arm of Crew. My husband uh, sort of does a lot of the publishing and writing. He's a um, philosopher as well, and then I write and edit. Um, so that's how we spend our days right now. But primarily, I would say that I'm a writer. Um, poetry and narrative nonfiction and fiction. Uh, so I just really enjoy that um, 
for our children are older now. So we have a 29-year-old, 28, and 27. All right. Well, you are an empty nester, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are. <laughs> Which I think makes probably makes for some really good writing spaces. It's true. It really is true. Uh, but I have to say, you know, the distractions are still there. For me, my distraction is Craigslist. I know that sounds weird, but that's my vice. So, but I've got some cool stuff at home, I have to tell you. Very cool things I've gotten for very little money. So, so wait, do you get on Craigslist looking for things in particular or just seeing what's out there today? I just see what's out there today. I, it's, uh, you know, when I take a break, I'll just kind of peruse Craigslist and see what's new. That is so funny. And it is. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter will tell me something she really needs, and then I'll just let her know when there's something available. So. Oh, my goodness. Well, we all have our vices. That's maybe one of the more creative ones I've heard about. <laughs> um, <laughs> True. So Kate, let's let's hear a little bit about your thoughts on Fierce and Lovely and where in you your life you see the intersection of those two words. How do those two words even sit with you? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to hear what you think. Sure. Uh, let's see. I would never have described myself as a fierce person. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure I would describe myself as fierce now. Um same with lovely. I uh, never would have considered myself a lovely person, How you know, depending on how you would define that. So I think that those are the sorts of things that God has used events in my life to build into me. So kind of took dragged me <laughs> screaming and thrashing about into this place where I was able to become a fierce and lovely person and see where that intersection lies you know, and understand in a new way that even though I knew in my head that those sorts of things lie with Christ, uh, to just have him put me right there where I almost visibly saw it, where I was experiencing it on Mm. every side uh, was quite profound. And, you know, it's it's stuck and that will never leave me. So in the end, you know, people hear about trials and stuff and how, um, you know, they they would never want to go through it again, but they're glad they did. Uh, I, I really understand that now. Mm-hmm. I really do. I can say that. So would you say, you're saying that prior to this season of life that was incredibly trying, you wouldn't have seen yourself as fierce and lovely, but it was that season that you walked through where you began to see those two in effect. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yes, exactly. I Perhaps lovely wouldn't apply as much as fierce, but I definitely would not have seen myself as a fierce person or or a person, persevering person. I might have said that I was, but now that God has built these things into me, I look back and think, oh, I was so weak. Mm-hmm. You know, my faith was weak. And, uh, you know, it's very scriptural, obviously, that God builds these things into us. And, um, you know, for me, anyway, um, it wasn't as gradual, perhaps, as others, but it was sort of a, wow, here, I'm going to do this for you and do it effectively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he did. Well, it's interesting because I I know 
more of, of, I mean, I know your story post that season in, mm-hmm. in real life, but also having just finished your book about that season that I assume you're referring to. And I see you being a fierce and lovely woman um, <laughs> all throughout. And so it's just interesting to think that prior to that, you would not have seen yourself or described yourself in that way at all. Um, So how about let's, let's share with my listeners a little bit more about what you're referring to this season of life, the, this intense story that you have just um, written about. And why don't we start um, just with kind of the overall what happened and then we'll dive into some of the particulars. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, over the course of about five years, maybe even a little bit more, um, we began to have uh, sort of an open house. We've always had that, you know, when our children were younger, the neighborhood kids would come over and that sort of thing. And that's just something we chose a long time ago to do and that we would be a part of their lives. And um, I guess probably just like a lot of parents. Um, And uh, eventually, our kids uh, began to bring over some of their high school friends and that just kind of grew and our house became very much uh, just very open and people would literally be staying here all night. And my husband Rick would talk with them a lot about, you know, about faith and philosophy and a lot of these kids are very, very bright, very bright. And, um, you know, they had good relationships with their own families, most of them. But I think that there was a certain comfortableness here that they were drawn to. And uh, as things just progressed, uh, you know, there were other kids who were struggling with drugs who would come over and talk. And my husband had ended up with two Bible studies. I think Wednesdays, Wednesday night, he would have a Bible study for kids who were sober and desiring to walk with God. And then maybe Tuesday's uh, Bible study for kids who are still caught in the grip of drugs. Um, So that's, you know, God just began to do things and we saw tons of change. And uh, within this time, we didn't know it, but our son had begun doing drugs and uh, which of course we thought was just your basic, uh, you know, marijuana or that sort of thing. But it got worse and worse. Um, and some of his friends came to us and told him to come to us and tell us that he was doing heroin. So that was a big changing point. That's where things really sort of tipped. Mm-hmm. And the reality, the seriousness of it, uh, that we were getting in over our heads. And so we ended up with kids staying here uh, who are struggling with the same things. And we saw a lot happen, far more than we ever ever imagined (laughs) we would see. In fact, you know, it's interesting. Humility is such a huge part of my book and my story and the ways that God built, you know, fierceness and loveliness into my life is through, uh, through humility and through him building humility in me. And, um, so, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the kids that ended up over here, were just the types of kids that I wouldn't have necessarily been drawn to at all. Um, you know, I can be drawn to people who are struggling in other countries or that kind of thing, but kids who are just, you know, at the time I might've seen them as mess ups. I know better now, far better now, but, um, never would have been drawn to those sorts of kids in this very group, uh, that 
I would have avoided ended up under our roof. And God just gave me this deep, deep love for them. Mm. And you you call them the lost boys in your book. Um, I do. Which I, yes. I love um, because that just communicated to me how you felt about these kids um, mm. and how I think what struck me the most um, in how you wrote about all of the different individuals that were coming in and out of your home is such an affection. I mean, you were, in my eyes, a mother to all of these kids, just this mm. loving, um, open-armed, uh, very patient with their addictions, um, very loving toward them no matter what, no matter where they were in their journey. And I was really struck by that. And I'm, I'm curious how that developed, especially if it was kind of a crowd, like you just said, a group that you wouldn't have ever been drawn to naturally. And so mm-hmm. how do you begin to to love them uh, and embrace them when it felt it probably felt really foreign and uncomfortable? Yeah, well, you know, the reason I started calling them the Lost Boys is after, you know, the Peter Pan story Mm -hmm. where you have the Lost Boys, as they're called, you know, constantly fighting off Captain Hook. And uh, that's sort of the way it ended up being. I would see Captain Hook as being drugs in the world and more specifically heroin. Um, And it just fit, you know, for me. And, you know, so it was a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing that people would sort of laugh about. But uh, it actually helped me in some ways because this narrative was becoming very clear. God was revealing this story to me uh, about each of these kids. And if I didn't know their stories and I didn't spend time with them, I wouldn't have had that same compassion. And isn't it true with so much of the world, right? I mean, if we know people's stories, God gives us love for them. It's so much easier to love them. We understand a little bit more about why they are, who they are, why they struggle one way or another. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, can be a profound thing. So God really did just change things. It wasn't any, you know, nothing I did. It, it, it's just if you got to know these kids, you could not help but mm-hmm. love them. I think what was interesting is that you you mentioned and, you know, not not in detail, but you mentioned a little bit of each of their stories. And so many of these kids had loving parents at home. And, um, and, and you mentioned humility. There's something to that, right? Where we have this stereotype of kids who do drugs are like this or come mm-hmm. from families like mm-hmm. this, fill in the blank. And here you and your husband are loving these kids. Their own parents are loving these kids. They're bright. They're they have all of the future ahead of them and opportunities laid out for them. Rick's leading Bible studies for them. It's a home infused with uh, Jesus, and yet here they are facing addiction. Uh, Captain Hook has come for them. And I, I thought that was compelling, this idea that addiction um, hits everybody and it's not particular in who who it chooses. Can you speak more to that, what that was like for you to wrestle with that, like your own humility, talk a little bit more about that, and then just that general, like, yes, addiction hits the best of us no matter how we raise our kids in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, 
I think that that was a big part of my humility had to do with actually having a child get involved with something as serious as heroin, because I never would have thought that would be us ever. I assumed that we were um, just inoculated because of the way they grew up. And that is not to say we were perfect parents. We made plenty of mistakes, uh, but I would imagine most people do. Most parents do. So, you know, I guess as young parents, particularly in the 90s, we were, you know, in the Christian world, I think that we were sort of trained or taught or however you want to say it, to believe that if you do this, then this will happen, that it was very much a cause and effect. You know, if you don't let your kids watch too much TV, they'll be an amazing reader, you know, sorts of things like that. And it's just not a simple world. And the world really is very dark and very light with Christ. And that's so biblical, but we forget that, you know, that we're in a literal war. And it helped me to realize that, you know, it didn't scare me as much as helped me because it brought more truth into a situation where I was grasping for truth. So understanding and remembering that it is a dark world and a light world, that it is evil and good, that it is Christ and it is literally Satan, which we don't even like to use that word so much anymore. But yes, he's real. And I think it's good to remember that. Um, So through all of that, uh, perhaps especially uh, the sense that we had failed as as parents, and that was a that was a big hurdle for me to get over feeling like it was my fault. Um, I was able to see that, you know, it was a whole different world than I thought that it was. And, um, you know, uh, addiction, I really believe now is a disease. It's a preventable disease, you know, but it is a disease and people are more inclined to become addicted as other people. It's mm-hmm. a very real thing. I think as a parent of teenagers, what would be going through my mind, um, what what did go through my mind as I was reading your book were questions about, oh, what school were they in? Was it the school's fault? Was How about the friends? Or did we have too much of an open door policy? Were there too many kids doing drugs surrounding my son all the time? Um, you even mentioned in the book, like, what if I had homeschooled? Or um, that all of those questions and doubts, I'm sure you wrestled with as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk mm-hmm. to parents of teens today, what are you hearing? Are you hearing similar things? And what are you saying to them? Well, you know, that's one probably my biggest concern in writing this book is I didn't want to scare parents. Um, now, um, when our kids were younger, you know, they said to talk to your kids about, you know, about drugs. And we did. And I did. Uh, but it was very much like, don't do drugs. They're stupid. You know, I didn't sit down. We didn't sit down and understand the reality of them or most particularly that they were in danger too. You know, we thought that they wouldn't be in danger. They had great friends, that sort of thing. They went to a great school. Um, You know, they had all these things. But now, and I think because of some of this, and, and I believe that these things are orchestrated by God, there is enough going on. Uh, for parents to understand now to really prevent a lot of this. You know, when a younger mom, when we talk about heroin with a younger mom now, it is not something that exists in the inner city and that's it, you know, or far away, or it doesn't come near us. It's not in our neighborhood. Um, But 
that's the way it was with me. But I think that now most young parents, uh, dads and mothers, um, understand that it's close by to take it seriously. And that talk with their kids isn't, uh, don't do drugs. You know, it is more of a sit down and say, hey, this is going on in our neighborhood. Um, let me know if you see anything or if, you know, if you're tempted, whatever. So there's just a lot more going on. And of course, research is coming up with a lot of uh, things that will help addicts recover. And um, it's just a lot of promising things out there. I just don't want parents to walk away discouraged, but more encouraged uh, by what's available. And most most of all, and this is something I hit a lot in the book over and over, is that uh, please don't judge, which is what I did. Don't judge like I judged. It's just wrong. Uh, these families, these kids themselves need help. They need community more than they've ever needed community. However, a lot of times that's when community just backs off. Um, and that doesn't mean these kids all come from great homes. Plenty of times they don't. You know, there's plenty of, plenty of uh, addicts who come from, you know, pretty messed up backgrounds. But they need, uh, you know, compassion more than anybody, mm-hmm. perhaps, because they might not have a stable environment to go home to. Well, I think that is what was so compelling about the Lost Boys and the open door policy that you had in your home. And then even later in the hospital, they're always around. And, you know, they didn't go running (laughs) in shame or fear of you and your husband when things got really bad. Um, And perhaps they might have felt responsible or um, like they had failed your son as well, but they, they didn't, they stayed, they were always there. And I think that community that you built and talk about so lovingly is the encouragement of the book. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that was one of the core messages that I took from it. Yeah. We, we saw a lot because of mm-hmm. that, you know, God allowed us to, mm-hmm. to see some people. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what, what finally happened. So you're, you realize your son is into heroin and for a while he wants, he wants to stop. Right. And you're testing him daily and you think perhaps it's over. And then why don't you share a little bit of the story of what happens? Yeah. Well, goodness. Uh, he ended up, um, just, getting into it again. And I wouldn't say that he ever didn't want to do it. He always, I mean, ever wanted to, he always didn't want to, he knew how dangerous it was. And I think by then he'd figured out how addictive he was, that he had an addictive personality. So, um, but he got into it to the point where he left, you know, the house specifically one night. And then the next morning he was with some of his friends, some lost boys. One of the lost boys had actually stayed up all night with him because he was worried about him because he'd gone into the city and purchased some heroin. So, uh, and he couldn't wake him up that, that morning. Um, so I got that call, you know, in the morning that, Hey, we can't wake sweet boy up. That was the first words he said. And from there things just take off. So we, you know, we rushed over to where he was and the paramedics and he was blue and, you know, it was the whole horrible nightmare at that point. And then we uh, went over to the hospital and from there he was in, um, they needed to stabilize him. 
He went into septic shock, which I didn't know anything about at that time either. <laughs> but septic shock is, uh, there's about a 20% chance you'll live. It's a very, very serious thing. And then his heart started failing. It was very bad. And they got him up into the CCU. And, uh, you know, hour by hour, we did not know if he was going to make it. And that's when, as you talked about all the lost boys coming, yeah, they surrounded us. <laughs> they were in those waiting rooms just surrounding us. You know, one of them thought we should sing. So we all sang and then we um, prayed together over and over and over again. So we had so many people supporting us. And I just love those lost boys so much. In fact, um, <clears throat> sweet boy's best friend, uh, Christopher, was there, of course. and. Um, Rick went and just hugged him for the longest time. And he just said, I need to hug you because you're the closest thing I have to my son right now. So things like that, just, they were, they were our comfort, you know, um, they really did end up being our comfort. So, uh, let's see, I guess over the course of three days, he was on life support. And, uh, you know, the third day, I think that they took the, um, intubation I can't remember what it's called too about of him and he woke up and so that was really encouraging they the at a certain point his heart was only beating 14 times a minute so it got very very serious um you know we you know they were kind of preparing us that he would make it so it was a prayer constant 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 prayer we had so many people praying even in uh, you know other countries <laughs> Thankfully, we knew a lot of people right. who would pray. So, and we made it. And you, I, I just imagine after that, how do you as a mother go back to not fearing every every moment that he leaves your sight that this is going to happen again? I mean, how do you even function <laughs> as his mother after yeah. almost losing him? Um, and knowing that three days in the hospital yeah. did not kick the addiction. Um, and so just living in that tension, what was that like for you? <sighs> or what is it still like? It's definitely faded for sure. Um, you know, there's frequently um, relapses, of course. I'm sure you've heard of that. But he's thriving right now, truly thriving. He's married to a beautiful woman and they're expecting a baby in a couple weeks. And um, I think that, you know, it's probably not unlike somebody who struggles with a chronic disease or chronic pain, um, where it becomes a daily thing and a daily trusting God uh, of this unknown thing. You know, I don't know what disease I have, <laughs> but or, and I don't know what's going to happen to my son. So, you know, you have to walk in that faith. I've been sort of required by God. That's That's a requirement for me. Because this life has been hard in certain ways to, um, you know, mm. wake up daily mm. and trust him. My son. Well, I guess that's almost all you can do, right? Is wake, is wake up daily, trust again, pray mm -hmm. some more. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that one of the things I touch on in the book is just that it became at a certain point, uh, you know, you think of what if, what if, what if, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? And somehow the Holy Spirit really got me to a place where I was able to say, even if, meaning that even if the worst happens, God is still God. I am loved. Eternity is real. Um, 
And that's what we hang on. And, you know, if you think about it in scripture, that's what Paul had to do. That's what Jesus had to do, you know. And a lot of that was coupled with humility. And humility, I like to see as sort of this golden key that unlocks uh, so much, you know. Humility is necessary to love others, really. Humility is necessary to trust Christ. And so, you know, I've learned that. And that's been one of the probably most important Mm. things I've learned, actually. Well, you said seven years have passed since that overdose um, where you almost lost him in the hospital. And he's doing well today and thriving. Where where are all of the lost boys? Have you kept track of them? Are Mm. they all in different um, levels of thriving of their own? Mm. Or, Or some I'm sure you might have even lost or are still in the throes of addiction. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, it just rejoice in so many ways. Uh, we have, let's see, one PhD. Another is wants to go into translations. He just found out when he went back to school that he was really good at translating things. <laughs> he is one of the really brilliant kids. Um, let's see, another one uh, is, he likes to build with his hands. He's very good with that sort of thing. So he's, uh, I think he's got his master's in um, Biola and missions. So he's worked a lot with uh, missions, overseas building, you know, making wells, that sort of thing. So those are the three of his closest friends i would say um then unfortunately we did lose one to heroin overdose we that's ridiculous no he was lost to heroin overdose Mm. his parents lost him and uh, another just wonderful guy who he was a little bit older not that much older used to stop by he uh uh was an alcoholic and he flipped his car and died so that's Mm. those are two just really sad stories. Um, and then, you know, we had one who did end up, and he wasn't here a lot, but he ended up uh, basically becoming psychotic. And that's another story, but, you know, I, I have a thing about the marijuana stuff where, you know, for a lot of reasons, people think that it's benign, that there's nothing the matter with it. But I just think that it's important for people to realize that, uh, you know, if you look at some of the studies, there's a really high incidence of psychosis, um, schizophrenia, bipolar, things like that, uh, that it could really uh, sort of begin a lifetime of struggling with those things. And uh, not that I'm here nor there on legalization, because I understand the uh, how complicated it is, you know, with um, legalizing it and you don't want people to be thrown in jail for it that, right. things like that so right anyway, and you know where i live so side. we have all of those conversations oh, that's right <laughs> <laughs> you probably have tapestries all over your walls i don't even know <laughs> um well i just i have this picture what <laughs> uh-huh. i i have this picture <laughs> of the, the the kids and particularly the hospital when he's, you know, just hanging on to life. And I picture Jesus Mm -hmm. just there. And these, these kids love him and want to pray and worship Mm -hmm. and yet still are struggling with heroin or alcohol or whatever it is. And I know they're all of them have different stories with that, but I just, think that's such a beautiful image of God is present always, everywhere, 
And Jesus loves us always, everywhere, no matter what we are doing, no matter our choices, and that sometimes we are making poor choices and still loving Jesus. And that is a tension that we just have, have to embrace. And by you embracing that so beautifully, I think that's what saved your son. And that's what has allowed all of these kids yeah. to thrive um, is because they experienced that unrelenting grace through from Jesus, through you and your husband. Mm. And I, I, yeah, I feel emotional yeah, about it because it's that. just so beautiful to me. And when we're black and white and when we are judging, like you said, when we are um, just assuming certain things about uh, people and their choices, we just miss out on that grace. And I was really moved by what I saw in your life, in your story. So thank mm. you. Um, sharing that with us um, in oh, your book you. um, and I will definitely share in the show notes where people can pick up a copy um, I hope that this is encouraging to a lot of women who have kids and are just wondering what this looks like as our kids face all different kinds of struggles and so do their friends and how do we love them well so you've been a great example for all of us yes.